ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello and welcome to the Gun Racks Northern Desert Institute School of Firearms Technology's official podcast. I'm Josiah Upper. Folks call me Joey and with me we have one Drew Poplin. Drew Poplin. We're back together again. Um, and it's so good. Yeah. Drew has been a traveled man these past couple of weeks. He's even out of the house today, but we're still we'll st- we are still here recording. Where are you calling in from this week? I am in the mountains in Burnsville, North Carolina, right now. Uh, <laughs> you ask me in a couple of days, who knows where we'll be? But yeah, we've been bouncing around right now. This nice log cabin, but it's like at the top of a giant hill. But it's kind of been nice because as I've been doing research for this episode and like kind of like trying to mentally put myself into that space, kind of being able to look down at the incline and see, you know, kind of get almost the image of what it was like for the British. Yeah. Mountain. Uh, it's been pretty cool. I understand there's also a birthday boy. That is true. Oh, what? Yeah. Earlier this week, it was Joey's birthday. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. We're all grown up now. Got one year until we're in the 30s, which is pretty wild to think about. This podcast debuted when I just turned 25. So we are a couple weeks away from the gun rack being four years old, which is absolutely baffling to me. It was great. It was a good time. Birthdays on Labor Day, which as a kid is awful, the absolute worst. When you're an adult, it's kind of fun because people don't do a ton of traveling for Labor Day these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, had a good time. Lots of ribeyes were grilled. And, uh, and I imagine uh, a decent amount of your friends were probably off work too. Yeah, we had a pretty good. Uh, we had a pretty good day. Had some coworkers too. <laughs> Are you familiar with the cards that you open and there's a little music thing inside? Yeah, um, yeah. and then it just doesn't turn off. I had a friend drop one off, caught me unsuspecting, and then it went for five hours in my office. And I oh. like there were not enough spare rags and various textiles to encase it with to completely muffle it. So it was just gently playing as I had a couple of meetings yesterday. What song was it? Never gonna give you up. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, for are five we, hours straight. Are we sure? Like, because there's been rumblings that your office or the floor that your office is on is haunted. Is it possible that this was a paranormal rickroll? It's not impossible. I will tell you that. Um, I'm not certain that the individual that dropped it off is not a ghost. <laughs> um, and on top of that, uh, to to add to the mystery... Uh, we had a couple of people come into the office and I had it muffled to the point where like it's in a file cabinet. It's surrounded by like an apron and a jean jacket and a couple of other things. Basically everything I could possibly find to try to mute this thing and shoved off into a corner. And it's basically if you have your TV on volume one, that's approximately what this thing was doing. So if you're talking, 
you can't hear it. So one guy came in and was familiar with what was happening uh, and thought it was pretty funny. Another person came in, had no idea that's what was going on. And we're talking and I'm trying to talk through and basically mm-hmm. get to the point where like we're covering for this Rick roll that's taking place in my office. But the conversation dies down and you can just hear very gently Rick Astley coming through the file cabinet. And she refuses to acknowledge this music that's going on in the office. <laughs> it's just come like no matter what happened, she was not going to let that affect our conversation on any level. So eventually she turned around and left. But that was even better, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, speaking of birthdays, I have something that is uh, I'm pretty happy with in preparation for someone else's birthday. In December, one of my coworkers here at Old Salem turns 39, I think, something like that. Okay. And uh, he is the largest World War II buff I have ever seen. And I say that having the closest thing that you can get outside of an online school to a bachelor's in World War II. I'm sure you can actually find one. Don't fact check me. But um, within 30 minutes, he had thoroughly talked me into the ground on the topic of World War II, which I I didn't know was possible. It's, It's truly amazing what he's done. So what I'm doing with the alliance of our good friend Chad GPT is collecting a compilation of short essays on various topics of World War II, some of which are real, some of which are not real at all, and just sound like very vague, like a history professor's pitch for a doctoral thesis on something that no one would ever want to read again. So I thought I would read off the titles I have so far. There are two true stories in these titles, and then all the rest of them are fake. I need you to find the real ones. Okay, Hitler's Hero, The Secret History of the Fuhrer's Favorite Sandwich, Storage Wars, How the Thrilling Race to Invent Tupperware Led to the Downfall of Imperial Japan, From Forests to Front Lines, The Roaring Tale of Wojtek the Soldier Bear, Unsung Heroes, The Exploits and Tactics of Finland's Greatest Optometrists, Chilling Germany, the unbelievable true story of Nazi air conditioning and the men who cooled the Third Reich. <laughs> the devil made me do it. How Romania's reluctant Nazi compliance and military incompetence saved Russian lives. That's what I have so far. Well, I think the Wojtek the Bear one is real. It is real. Wojtek the Iranian Bear, who was I'm used the- to carry ammo around. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I'm trying to remember where I saw that, but um, my my wife knows that I like bears a lot, so she sent me. Yeah, I love bears. Uh, she sent me an article. I'm trying to think. I want the air conditioning one to be real. It is not that I'm aware of. Um, so far, the most of these are actually just straight up verbatim. I'll own it. Taken from Kyler Gordon. Uh, video shorts who does yes absolutely ridiculous like you're in x period of time as this person and then he just like shouts out their internal monologue Uh and this is a bunch of like professors trying to make (laughs) trying to like come up desperately with new things to write essays about on world war ii because we're out of topics (laughs) 
he is very funny. I'm a, I will so, come up with some of my own in here as well, but that was what spawned the whole concept. Um, so what was the, uh, what was the second real one? Was the, the second one Romania is, one? it's Romania, yeah. Yeah. That one's I, a little too plausible sounding, I think. I might need to tweak the headline. Um, my man, Kyle Gordon, I have to give a shout out because how the thrilling race to invent Tupperware led to the downfall of Imperial Japan is just, that's, that's <laughs> comedy gold. Yeah, yeah. No, that, sorry. That one and the AC one got me. And yeah. it was like, that is so wild that I could possibly believe it. Uh, yeah. Well, the best is the way Kyle says it. He tries to say it in like Ken Burns' dry documentary voice, right? So he says, chilling Germany, the unbelievable true story of Nazi air conditioning and the men who cooled the Third Reich. Brilliant. Uh, it's, oh. it's beautiful. Well, today we're going to talk about uh downfall of another empire. Uh, that yeah. means British Empire. Today we are finishing off. It's our little mini-series inside our series on King's Mountain. So last time we talked a little bit about Patrick Ferguson. He was the guy who was the British commander at King's Mountain. We briefly talked about Musgrove Mills, uh, the battle that happened there, and then just some of the other events that led up King's Mountain, including the threat that Patrick Ferguson issued to the leaders in the mountains. The sources I used uh, when researching for this uh, is a lot of the same ones from the previous episode. So like the National Park Service, Battlefields.org, HistoryJunkie.com, Journal of the American Revolution, AmericanHistoryCentral.com. I definitely want to give a huge shout out there to Southern Campaign NPS, National Park Service. They have their channel on YouTube and they have like a six, I think even at like a, they have a, huge series on King's Mountain. Each episode is about 30 minutes long. And they talk about some of the firearms and the tactics, everything leading up to this battle. So that was a great resource and definitely encourage you guys to check it out. Um, yeah. Yeah, although the videos are like 30 minutes long, it goes by so quick. So props to them. The park ranger that was in charge of that maybe needs a raise. So let's talk about the Over Mountain Men. We've mentioned them a couple times in this broader series, so let's talk about them for a little bit. They are a bit of a mystery. What we know about them is that they were almost certainly frontiersmen who resided in modern-day northeastern Tennessee, western North Carolina, and southwestern Virginia. Uh, right there, sort of the Blue Ridge, Appalachian, that area of the United States. We suspect that a lot of them were you know, Scottish, Irish, German ancestry, a uh, fair amount of them also British. And these guys, they're, they're pioneers. They were frontiersmen, and they lived on what was technically forbidden land, uh, according to the Proclamation of 1763. It was land that technically belonged to the Native Americans, in particular the Cherokee. And so obviously, with you know people moving to this area, that caused tension between the Native Americans there and uh, the Overmountain men. Uh, and these tensions would kind of boil over at the start of the war. There was always like squabblings and skirmishes. But the Cherokee, who had enough of settlers in their area, and arguably rightfully so, they would actually ally with the British uh, during the Revolutionary War. So during the early years of conflict, 
the mountains would basically see if these over mountain men or the OMM as I have them in my notes because it's easier than typing over mountain men all the time going up against the Cherokee. And they'd eventually defeat the Cherokee force. And upon doing this, uh, they were actually allowed to become an official county of North Carolina. Uh, they called themselves Washington County, uh, which is now Washington County, Tennessee. Once the Battle of Musgrove Mills happened and Ferguson sent his threat into the mountains, the over the mountain then decided that they'd had enough of Ferguson. Their ire temporarily was off the Native Americans and now onto <laughs> Ferguson in particular. But with their main force being quite small, they knew they needed some help. They knew they needed more men. So basically, they sent word throughout the whole area the mountains and foothills and they told people hey we're gathering at sycamore shoals and we're gonna we're gonna take on ferguson at this time you know there's a lot of these colonels that are involved in the battle uh you have your william campbell's your arthur campbell's your isaac shelby's your john severe's but one guy i want to mention uh, and talk about a little bit is a man by the name of Benjamin Old Roundabout Cleveland. Joey, have you ever heard of Benjamin Cleveland? I've heard the name, but my familiarity with him pretty much ends there. I probably, if you asked me in a vacuum, I could probably tie him to the Revolutionary War. But that's it, pretty much. Mm -hmm. I think he's a, I want to say he's a Virginia native, but that is a shot in the dark. And also that was the most populous state, so it's... Yeah. It's, it's well, kind of just a guess. Well, you are technically correct. Yes. Oh, heck yeah. Let's go. He grew, uh, he did grow up in Virginia. Uh, but it's mainly for selfish reasons that I want to talk about him because uh, he would eventually live and reside in the Yakin Valley, in particular in Rhonda, North Carolina, which was only five to 10 minutes away from where I grew up. And this is the first time I ever really heard of him. So Benjamin Cleveland, he was the son of English immigrants, and he was a bit like Daniel Morgan in the sense where, you know, he was tough, he was rugged, ram a bit rambunctious. Um, he grew up in Virginia, and apparently one of his really, really good friends was Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone's like a legend around these parts. And Boone and Cleveland, they had this mutual common disdain for the tame farm life and uh they both like kind of desired that adventurous frontiersman existence boone himself would eventually move to the yakin valley in north carolina meanwhile cleveland himself stayed in virginia for a little bit longer and this community in virginia that he was a part of and he's kind of one of the leaders of it was pretty wild so like during the harvest times Basically, all the neighbors, they would gather up. Uh, he would invite the neighbors over. There'd be, you know, a guy playing a fiddle, and there'd be a bunch of booze, like a bunch of liquor. And um, basically, by the end of the day, the nights normally ended in debauchery. Eventually, he kind of wanted to get a little bit out of the scene, have a bit of a fresh start. So he would follow his friend's footsteps and head to the Yakin Valley himself. And so he moved to, um, at the time it was called Surrey County, which still exists today, albeit it's a lot smaller, but he moved to Surrey County in 1769. 
Uh, funny enough, the Yakin Valley was actually already to start. It started growing in population already, which is maybe the last time it ever grew in population as someone who lived there most of my life. But more population yeah. these times meant less game to hunt. And so by the time he arrived, Daniel Boone had already made his way to Kentucky, which has got to be a little sad because I, I, in my head, I'm imagining that Cleveland just wanted to be with his best friend. So he moved down purposefully. He gets there and it's like, hey, uh, wh- where's Daniel? Where Where's Daniel? Oh, he left. He gone. Maybe they weren't as good of friends as uh, thought it was. You heard, uh, yeah. heard Cleveland was coming down. It's like, uh, I'll. I guess I'll just go into the wilderness. Um, Kentucky at this time had like this mystique about it. Like it wasn't officially a state. It was just this area of land. But apparently the land was you know, beautiful, had a lot of game. So it was a good place for someone like Daniel Boone. He later returned to North Carolina in 1771 before leaving for hunting in Kentucky in the autumn of 1772 again. Uh, so in uh, 1772... Benjamin Cleveland decided he wanted to take a bunch of his friends and to find Daniel Boone wherever he was in Kentucky. He wanted to join up with them. Uh, on the way, so they bump into this uh, Cherokee hunting party, and they weren't happy to see these white boys in their areas. So basically, Cleveland's party that he assembled, they had their horses, their guns, their ammunition, and shoes all taken from them, and they were sent back home. It, I'm sure that was a humiliating journey back home, especially without shoes. But, you know, they eventually made it back home to the Yakin Valley. Once they got back, Cleveland would enlist the help of a group of men and a friendly chief, uh, or a chief that was friendly to the settlers, uh, named Big Bear. And they went and retook those items that they lost. You know, it's not mentioned exactly how they did this. Whether it's peaceful or not, uh, who knows? Who knows? I have my theories. Anyway, let's uh, let's fast forward to the Revolutionary War and Benjamin Cleveland in it. So Cleveland, at the start of the war, was actually offered a commission to serve in the Continental Army, but he turned it down. According to him, he wanted to focus on leading the militia effort back home, back in the Yakin Valley. So why did he decide to fight for the Patriot cause in the first place, you may be wondering? Well, in 1775, his neighbors, they went to buy supplies at an outpost, and they were compelled, before they could buy or sell any goods, they were compelled to take the oath of allegiance to the king. Upon hearing this, Benjamin Cleveland gathered a group of local men to attack these loyalists. Uh, He would chase these men throughout the countryside until he captured them, and he ended up executing one of them. This would start a little bit of a pattern for Benjamin Cleveland, mind you. So for the next few years, he would earn himself a reputation while fighting the Cherokees and the Loyalists. Depending on whether you were a Loyalist or a Patriot, your view on him will differ, as well your name. The Patriots, he was Cleveland's Bulldogs, which sounds suspiciously like the Cleveland Browns. Now that, now that I say it out loud. They don't know what state they're in, man. Yeah. <laughs> but to the Loyalists, to the Tories, he, him and his men were called Cleveland's Devils. And that's because they went around and they burned down Loyalist towns. To them, Cleveland's men were characterized by, quote, inhumanity, summary hangings, and mutilation. 
unquote. Sometimes he would even hang uh, Tories by their thumbs until they confessed to uh, what the British movements were in the area. And that actually created like a local expression from where, where I'm from. It's uh, hanging one by his thumbs, which I've actually still heard even to this day. But again, conflict in the South, it was an eye for an eye. Violence begot violence and so on and so on. And, you know, I mentioned this because, I'm, again, I want to highlight what the environment was like in the South during the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Fast forward to 1778. He was still doing his thing, hanging Tories. And uh, meanwhile, he advocated for the creation of a new county in North Carolina that would be apart from Surrey County called Wilkes County. Not only was Wilkes County created, not only was Benjamin Cleveland made a uh, colonel, he was also appointed justice of Wilkes County. And for a man who was quite eager to hang folks, a little terrifying to think about. Maybe not the best place for him to be. Yeah. Uh, well, it gets better. Later that year, he was elected to the North Carolina House of Commons. I don't know if you can tell. I'm not a big fan of the guy. <laughs> hey, I know he did what he thought was right. And, you know, the standards back then, different than the standards today. I don't know if I should necessarily be holding up my modern lens of morality up to this guy. I don't know. He just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, he, he reminds me of. There's like, a difference yes. between holding up a modern perspective of morality and just recognizing a douchebag when you see one. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I mean, you look at pictures of them. He reminds me of Gaston, uh, but oh, like, oh no, but like chubby Gaston, or what's what's the name of the bad guy, the jerk in Ichabod Crane, yeah. Bones or something. That's uh, that's the vibes he kind of gives off. But, you know, again, I just want to be fair when we're doing these episodes. Like, so many times when I'm, like, doing research, you know, you hear about the British atrocities and, like, the Patriots were just these guys trying to, try to stand up to the bully. It's true to an extent, absolutely, but it, it just seems a little black and white for me. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about them. Anyway, let's finally get to 1780. Patrick Ferguson sent his message to Isaac Shelby and the Overmountain Men. They respond by saying, let's meet up at Sycamore Shoals and get this guy. So Benjamin Cleveland, he ended up gathering around 300 uh, men from the Yakima Valley and rode out to meet him. So by September 28th, the Overmountain men, uh, they were gathered at Grassy Creek, which was near Sycamore Shoals. They had the commanders like Isaac Shelby, who brought about 240 men. John Sevier, who had about 240 men. Uh, and Colonel William Campbell, who had about 400 men. I think most of his men were from Virginia, if I'm remembering correctly. The next day, they would cross over the Blue Ridge Mountains and split into two. Shelby and Sevier would lead one group, and William Campbell would lead the other. And then the next day, they joined back up at Colonel Charles McDowell's plantation, which is in modern-day Morganton, North Carolina. And then I think that's where Benjamin Cleveland and his 300 men met. So a bunch of guys kind of gathered at this plantation. October 1st, a couple of days later, these colonels started squabbling about, hey, which one of us is actually like the man in charge? You know, color me surprised when you have like five or six colonels in a room together, all the same rank. And then, you know, there's no, no organized, you know, there's no one leader. In fact, in order to settle this, they sent... Charles McDowell, the guy who owned the plantation, uh, and also a colonel, they sent him to Horatio Gates' camp 
an attempt to get Horatio Gates to officially decide who was the guy in charge. So Charles McDowell left to find out from Horatio Gates. Uh, and so he left Joseph, his brother, in command of his unit. They didn't exactly wait for a reply from Gates before pressing on to Kings Mountain. Like, they left the next day and just kept going. In fact, they made it to Patrick Ferguson's old headquarters in Gilberttown, North Carolina, only three days later. So my guess is they just didn't like Charles McDowell. Uh, and it's like, okay, we don't know who's in charge, but it's definitely not that guy. So let's send him off. It's a joke, but I'm not I'm not convinced it's not the truth. Yeah. You have you have to look in between the lines of the text. So anyway, for Ferguson, he started hearing that his threat was not well received. Shocking, I know. As early as September 19th, he started hearing about Patriot plans to form some sort of attack. So he got a lot of this intel from Samuel Chambers and James Crawford. And these guys were basically two turncoats. They were patriots. And then they decided they uh, wanted to pull a Benedict Arnold and start reporting on patriot activity. So upon hearing about this, Patrick Ferguson started to retreat. Uh, but he did slowly in the general direction of Fort 96, which is a fort I really want to visit. I think it keeps popping up in all these stories that we've done. So maybe that's worth a road trip for us. Yeah, I would agree with that. Thank you. But Ferguson believed that the Patriots were planning on attacking Fort 96. So he decided he was going to make his temporary camp at a little place called Kings Mountain. And his thinking was, if they go attack Fort 96, I'm close enough to where I can swoop in and squash them. Speaking of Kings Mountain, it's a bit of a stretch to call it a mountain much less a mountain for kings. Basically, it was a 60-foot flat-top hill. But, like, you know, still, it's a it's a good position for Ferguson to take. Uh, I mean, after all, they had had the high ground, which, if Star Wars has taught me anything, you know, that's really all you need. Yeah. Uh, and getting up that hill would be difficult for anyone. Well, anyone except, you know, your enemy, who literally has mountain men in their name. But in his defense, I don't think he... You know, again, he didn't necessarily plan on fighting at Kings Mountain. Again, he thought they were going to attack Fort 96. Uh, eventually, he realized that they were not going for the fort. They were coming after him. This was personal. So his last official request that he sent to Cornwallis was that Cornwallis send 400 dragoons to assist, to come to, come to his aid. They never came. On the other side, you had the Patriots. By October 6th, they were finally nearish striking range of Kings Mountain. So they decide to make a short little camp rest and a pasture that should be well known to you guys in South Carolina went by the name of Cowpins, which is crazy to think about. Like they didn't, obviously they didn't know that one of the most important battles of the war was going to happen in that same field. Anyway, they continued on and on October 7th, 1780, they finally arrived. What they did, they surrounded the base of King's Mountain basically in a U-shape, and they divided their force into eight detachments of about 100 to 200 men each. And when you look at King's Mountain, basically, from the research I've seen, a lot of people refer to it as being shaped as a foot. The source I saw said, quote, it is shaped like a footprint with the highest point at the heel, which was, I think, on the southwestern sort of side of it, a narrow instep, and a 
broad rounded toe sort of in the more northeast just one toe though yeah just yeah just one toe it was uh, you get one toe yeah <laughs> um joey could you do me a favor and um you know it's important that we kind of also talk about some of the firepower that each side had and a lot of the talk surrounding this battle is the talk of uh, muskets versus some of the early rifles like the pennsylvania rifles um, yeah absolutely yeah thank you sir okay so there are some basic things that we can go over when it comes to muskets versus rifles that i think most folks will know but it's always a good review anyway the difference between a musket and a rifle is uh, very similar to the difference between a rifle and a slug-throwing shotgun that you're using. Uh, you're not using a rifle barrel for. Rifles use what is called rifling, which I would imagine most of you already know, uh, but I'll cover it anyway. The when we're referring to rifling, we're talking about spiraling grooves on the interior of the barrel of the firearm that basically serve to give the projectile a spin. Uh, and that spin, like a football uh, thrown, uh, or now I'm going to stick with that analogy because it works best, like a football, uh, gives it a, a little bit more of a sharpened direction, and it makes your round significantly more accurate than it otherwise might be um muskets are often credited as being these they get the ak treatment where it's like you can't hit the broadside of a barn with this and that's not fair the effective range of a musket wasn't like 25 feet or something ridiculous like that and we're still talking in terms of many yards but uh there is a pronounced difference still with a musket which is what we call smooth bore right there's no rifling on the inside uh, and it doesn't have that pathing versus rifling now at this time in the revolutionary war we are still talking about ball shot mini a balls uh is that development perhaps inevitably from the french is where we start to get the idea that a conical projectile is going to, like rifling, uh, significantly increase your accuracy, precision, and range. We don't have that yet, but we do have rifling and a skilled marksman with a rifled black powder firearm, the right powder load, can hit at very long distances. I've got a Mine's a percussion lock, but the principle holds for this particular aspect of it. Uh, I've got a percussion cap, uh, 50 caliber muzzleloading rifle that I'm, I can shoot out 250 yards without really blinking an eye. And that is with round shot. That's not with a mini A-ball um, or a conical projectile. And these guys, some of these marksmen, were professionals that could do better than that. So when you have these musketeers, which is where that phrase comes from, uh, versus riflemen, uh, there is a significant advantage to those who are carrying rifles, but not so much so that it's like one side is holding spears and the other side is, is holding a modern-day rifle, right? It doesn't work that way. But one of the common misconceptions about this time, uh, we get it because uh, memes exist, and then also, there's this perpetually 
revolving myth around all armies that are outnumbered, that the outnumbered army is somehow more adept. They fight a guerrilla war. You even get it kind of comically to me in the out of the Germans of World War II, where you get these consummate professionals that are dancing circles around their clumsy opponents. And that's how they were able to last so long. It didn't really work that way. And for us as Americans, we get this, we're ninjas and uh, we hit people from the side of the moon. And also we do cool things like hide in bushes. And yes, there were, there was some bush hiding going on. Uh, but you know, who was very, very good at that kind of thing it was Bannister Tarleton. Um, that's one of the reasons he was so hated. Um, but uh, one of the myths about the British Army is that they only carried muskets. And the truth that's based on that is that they were issued muskets. So Ferguson is authorized to issue muskets to his men if they didn't have a firearm of their own. Most people are going to have a firearm of their own in this in this time. It's not, I think... The reliance on firearms is a little overstated once you get into the 19th century, because at that point, the East Coast is pretty well settled and you have city infrastructure coming into place. People don't have to hunt so much. There aren't Native American incursions, um, that kind of thing. But at this point in time, uh, there's still subsistence hunting going on and there's still a regular need uh, need for self-defense. So most of these people are going to be armed. Um but so he's authorized to issue muskets to anyone who doesn't have a firearm of their own. Could be that uh, I would imagine in this case, we're talking about sons who have left their family and their father owns a firearm and they don't, mm -hmm. or they're just really young and don't own the money yet. Or because this is the army, these are really, really, really poor people. And a firearm is a status symbol for a lot of folks, as well as a subsistence thing. That's why I see a lot of gold and silver and firearms, uh, silver especially. But his men are largely made up of loyalists, uh, not regulars. And by that, we mean people that reside in the South, in the United States uh, colonies at the time that were remaining loyal to the crown. And as Drew mentioned previously, they freaking hated uh, <laughs> their constitutionalist uh, opponents and vice versa. So much so that uh, a lot of the de-escalation in the end of the war and at the end of the war uh, was centered around not beating the snot out of <laughs> Southern British people. So that's the kind of people that he had with him. Ferguson had about 1,010 men for Loyalist militia and only about 90 Loyalist provincials. About half of the provincials had a rifle of some sort. So we're talking about 45, rough estimate. We'll call it 50 because that's a nice round number. Uh, stands to reason that many of his men brought their own guns for reasons that we've talked about before. Now... So when we're talking about the composition of muskets and rifles with British militia versus provincials, we're talking about people that are coming from a lower socioeconomic background, and those people tended to carry muskets instead of rifles because of how expensive and time-consuming a process rifling was. So there probably was a ratio uh, between muskets and rifles, but if someone said it was like 10 to 1 or higher, I would not be surprised at all. And I'm sure, frankly, if you really wanted to, you could do a deep dive on that. And someone has that info somewhere. Our archaeology buddies over at uh, Cowpens probably have a decent idea. But uh, eyeballing it, I, I would venture that's a decent guess. So if you're a British loyalist, 
right? And you don't have a firearm of your own and you don't really have a solid grasp of the ins and outs of firearms technology. This is more of a uh, paycheck and or possible repatriation to Britain when you're done. Um, Because a lot of people did leave uh, after in the Southern theater after, after the war was mostly lost on their side. You are walking into this battle with something of minimal training on. And at that point is probably when you realize that you could have gotten your education in firearms technology from Sonoran Desert Institute. Uh, SDI, it's an online school that helps students learn the skills and techniques they'll need to be successful in firearms and unmanned technology industries. SDI is accredited by the Distance Education Accrediting Commission. It's a DEAC. Currently, we offer two programs in firearms technology, the Associate of Science in Firearms Technology and the Certificate in Firearms Technology Gunsmithing. For more info, oh God, I just spilled coffee everywhere. Um, (laughs) Visit sdi.edu for more. Um, Yes, they wish they had the ability to to learn from the best or come visit Old Salem and see how they rifled things at that point in time. That is true. That is, that is our current display right now is how rifling works. So check that out. All right. I am leaving this to the capable hands of Drew Poplin to wrap up uh, the conflict itself. This has been a pleasure. I am, as always, amazing. Be respectful to our son, Drew. Um, he's very lonely in the mountains right now. So you're kind of his, you're his only friend. Not a weak, frail Victorian child, but I do appreciate it. Uh, yes, thank you, you for waking up and speaking only facts today, Joey. Appreciate You're very it. welcome. Uh, and I'll talk to you later. You have a good time, and I'll catch you on the next one. All right. Peace. So thanks again to Joey for that fizzle uh, bevy of information. But speaking of firearms, there is one more individual who deserves recognition before we really get started into the battle, and her name. Her name is Mary Patton. But Mary Patton was born in England in 1751, and Patton learned this trade from her father. Her father was a black powder maker. She learned it from her father. Uh, they moved to Pennsylvania when she was about eight or nine, and she was already really skilled at it. Her and her husband would you know, kind of move. Uh, they had six kids, and they started their own black powder business together. Unfortunately, her husband, who kind of joined the family business, uh, he died quite young. So this widowed mother of six just still cranking out black powder. And this this wasn't some like run-of-the-mill kind of powder. And yes, that pun was absolutely intended. This was like the very best powder you could get. In fact, you know, people refer to it, quote, as gourmet, unquote, gunpowder. Uh, and the reason I mentioned her in the episode, other than the fact that she's absolutely incredible and awesome, is that gunpowder was a valuable commodity, and it was becoming increasingly scarce for the Patriots. The Battle of King's Mountain honestly might not have happened, or certainly wouldn't have gone the way it did, if it was not for Mary Patton supplying 500 pounds of gunpowder, that premium good good, by herself. For this battle, um, granted, there was nearly one thousand patriots at the battle. I think there was like nine hundred and twenty or something, just from the top of my head. 
And so that would only be about half a pound of gunpowder for each man from this bunch. But that's heck of a lot more than what they had before. So going into this battle, thanks to Mary Patton, they had enough gunpowder for one big battle. So salute to you, Mary Patton. Um, anyway, you may be wondering what the tactical approach for the Overmountain was. In large part, it was something along the lines of, they're up on that hill, let's go get them. I mean, that's pretty much what it was. And around 3 p.m. October 7th, that's exactly what they did. And, you know, I mentioned the earlier squabbling amongst the colonels about who was in charge. Pretty much they led themselves, not just the colonels, each colonel leading the men themselves, kind of each man leading themselves. In fact, Isaac Shelby, according to some sources I saw, Isaac Shelby told his men just before they launched the attack, quote, don't wait for the word of command, but each one of you be your own officer and do the very best you can, unquote. <laughs> uh. Which doesn't necessarily sound uh, maybe as inspiring as he thought it would. Guys <laughs> says, "Well, do your best, guys. Let's try." But uh, it's like a uh, like a pee wee football coach. Anyway, at the beginning of the battle, melee skirmishes. Twice, both Isaac Shelby and John Severe made attempts to charge up the hill, but they were pelted back on each occasion. While the loyalists had the high ground and they had the numbers advantage. The Patriots, who had been used to fighting against the Native Americans, they were able to adopt uh, their strategies. Uh, and so they used the natural landscape to their advantage. You know, they were hiding behind rocks and trees. And so it was hard, you know, even with the volley fire, to really be able to hit them because they're, they're behind cover. Meanwhile, Patrick Ferguson was doing uh, everything he could, rallying his troops and he was trying to organize just some sort of resistance, and he was kind of doing an admirable job at it. He even managed to mount a bayonet charge that pushed Campbell and Severe's men back down the hill. Uh, the Patriots would then rally and try attacking back up the hill, and this kind of was the pattern for the majority of the battle. It went on for close to an hour of this, when finally Severe, Shelby, and Campbell who were positioned on the heel of the mountain, made it to the top, and they forced the loyalists to retreat to their camp on the northeastern side of the top of the hill, so like the toe area, the single toe. And at the same time, you're starting to get patriots around the toe that are starting to make their way up. Basically, they were even more surrounded than they were before. So there was little hope of escape now for loyalists. So many of the loyalist soldiers started to surrender, but Patrick Ferguson was not having that. And he reportedly took his saber and would slash down the white flags that people were waving. He even exclaimed to his men, quote, hurrah, brave boys, the day is ours, unquote, uh, which most likely was a bluff. He knew that, that this was over, and he was just trying to inspire his men to keep fighting. Soon after saying that, Ferguson tried getting some of his officers together to organize another counterattack. But Ferguson, who was on his horse, he would get shot, and he would actually get dragged by his horse behind the Patriot line. But he wasn't dead at this point. Um, a Patriot soldier ran up to Patrick Ferguson and demanded that he surrender. Ferguson would refuse by pulling out a pistol and killing the man, which, okay, that that's not cool, man. You're already got gods. Kind of an embarrassing thing happened, getting drugged by your horse to the enemy. At that point, just give up, dude. 
But yeah, the Patriots didn't think that's cool as well. And uh, Ferguson's body was basically found with around seven to eight bullet holes in him. So I think you can kind of gather what happened after he shot the one Patriot. So soon after, the rest of the Loyalists attempted to surrender by sending out a white flag. But they were met with calls and shots ringing out saying, Carlton's Quarter, uh, which is the reference to the massacre at Waxhaws. And so, you know, men were still being shot and killed. And then finally, they sent out another white flag. And at this point, Isaac Shelby, ordered a ceasefire, was able to corral the men and kind of, you know, bring them down. And like that, the battle was over. It lasted about 65 minutes uh, for the Brits out of their 1,100 men that were there at the beginning of the battle. 290 of them were killed, 163 were wounded, and 668 were taken prisoner. On the other side, the Patriots had only about 28 deaths and 600 wounded men out of their 900 to 1,000 men. Of course, there wasn't much time for celebration. They only had enough gunpowder for that battle. So they need to get out of there before they were counterattacked by Cornwallis. So what happened to some of these people? Well, let's start with Patrick Ferguson. As I said, he died. Uh, according to uh, Patriot accounts, their militia actually stripped his body and urinated on him. Uh, then they buried him in Oxide near the site of where he fell, and that's where he rests today. Also, apparently, he had a mistress with him at King's Mallon, which, uh, naughty, not good, dude. And unfortunately for her, she died at the battle as well. It's just wild. I, you know, never heard of that. But what happened to Isaac Shelby, William Campbell, and the Overmountain men? Well, amongst the men who participated in this battle, uh, I did want to mention this. One of the guys that was at the battle was a man by the name of John Crockett. But you are probably more familiar with his son, Davy. So after the battle, most of the Overmountain men basically just went back to their homes. Some of them would continue fighting the British, while for a lot of them, they had much more pressing enemies in their area, uh, which was the Cherokee and the you know, other Native American tribes. William Campbell, for his part, he led a group of men back to that field at Cowpens in an attempt to join Daniel Morgan at the Battle of Cowpens, but he actually arrived a day late. Isaac Shelby and John Sevier, uh, they ended up getting into politics, and each of them was instrumental in the formation of the states of Kentucky and Tennessee, respectively. Benjamin Cleveland, let's talk about Old Benjamin Cleveland. After the battle, he took one of Patrick Ferguson's prized horses for himself. There's kind of a famous painting of him uh, depicting that. Uh, not long after, Benjamin Cleveland captured two Tories and had them hanged. Shocking, I know. Then in retaliation, he would be captured by a group of loyalists, and they planned to execute him. But first, they wanted him to write passes for them so they could kind of move through the area without trouble and having like his authorization. Cleveland obliged, but he took his sweet time writing those out. You know, knew as soon as I write these out, they're going to kill me. So he wasn't a fast rider anyway. So it kind of worked out to his advantage. Before he could finish writing out the passes, he was actually rescued by a group of locals that was led by his brother. His brother also fought at King's Mountain. And according to some sources, he rallied troops and played a pretty uh big role in that battle but so they they rescued benjamin cleveland 
uh, and then they went after the guys that captured him. So they captured the Tory leader, they captured that guy's son, and then another Tory. Uh, and at this point, I'm sure you can guess what Benjamin Cleveland did. If you can't, he had them hanged. After the war, Benjamin Cleveland returned home, and he found that the title of his land uh, didn't belong to him anymore. Uh, apparently, his title's defective. Someone else had more paperwork for it than he did. So he moved to South Carolina. He continued his career in law. He got fat, and then he died. Now, for the Americans, the Battle of Kings Mountain, Thomas Jefferson referred to Kings Mountain as, quote, the joyful enunciation of that turn of the tide of success, unquote. The battle gave patriots renewed hope and vigor in the revolution, especially in the South. It actively discouraged people who are maybe undecided about their allegiances. Uh, it discouraged them from joining the loyalists. And I think to people like Benjamin Cleveland, there was actually a fair amount of loyalists that uh, switched their allegiance to the rebellion. Meanwhile, for the British, with the destruction of Ferguson's force, Cornwallis was now left exposed. Uh, his left flank was exposed. Um, and even though he got as far north as Charlotte and had plans to continue north, uh, his desire was to go you know, through North Carolina, through Virginia, and uh, win the war. He got as far as north as Charlotte, but now he is forced to retreat back to the hotbed of South Carolina and regroup. Not long after, when the pesky patriots decided to rear their head back into you know, this general area, Cornwallis would send one Bannister Tarleton to deal with these guys. But before the Battle of Calpins could happen, the British would have another test before them at Blackstock's plantation. And I'm going to close with the words about Kings Mountain from Sir Henry Clinton, who was the leader of the British effort in America during the Revolutionary War. He said that the Battle of Kings Mountain, quote, so encouraged the spirit of rebellion in the Carolinas that it can never afterward be humbled. The first link in a chain of evils that resulted in the total loss of America. And that has been King's Mountain. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Um, it's lovely having Joey on the show. And uh, yeah, just yeah, really been enjoying the series. Excited to keep it going. In my head, I think there's maybe three or four more episodes in the series that, that we can do, which is nice because originally it was only going to be a three-part series. So I think as we just keep learning more and more, more things keep popping up, and uh, that means more content and more history lessons for y'all. So that has been The Gun Rack. Folks, have fun, stay safe out there, and we will see you at the range. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.